Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. Thank you all for coming today and welcome to our June CWN, Conservative Women's Network. Special thank you to Bridget Wagner and the Heritage Foundation. We've been doing these monthly lunches now for 20 years and it's great every time. I'm pleased to introduce our June CWN speaker, Lindsay Craig. Lindsay is the president of the National Review Institute, NRI, the nonprofit that William F. Buckley founded in 1991 to complement the efforts of National Review magazine and promote the ideals of a free society that he championed. Under Lindsay's leadership, NRI has established sound physical footing even as it has become the parent company for National Review, Inc. She has expanded and enhanced its existing programs while establishing new ones, broadened its partnerships with policy organizations and policymakers across the country. And she remains active in the broader conservative movement, organizing events, serving on advisory boards, and speaking. And I was able to attend one of her events not too long ago, and I was going to give her full credit for it, but she said, no, give it to Alexandra. Where's Alexandra? <laughs> was a dinner honoring the Heritage Foundation's founder and former president, Ed Fulner, and also honoring Karen Wright, a friend to many in the conservative movement. The dinner was held in an extraordinarily beautiful building in Chicago. It was a former public library that Ed Fulner had actually gone to as a child, and it was restored about 10 years ago. It's now a, called a cultural center, and it has the most incredible... Tiffany, the largest in the world, Tiffany stained glass domes, marble, brass, mosaics, a building that just takes your breath away. And it was a great event, uh, and the building itself was just incredible. Now, Lindsay joined the National Review Institute six years ago, and prior to that, she spent 16 years at the Manhattan Institute for Public Policy, uh, another leading domestic policy think tank. As Vice President of Communications and Marketing at Manhattan, she oversaw the development of the Public Relations Department, Social Media and Web Development, and Strategic Marketing. In addition to her Communication Department duties, she spearheaded numerous other key Manhattan Institute projects like launching the Young Leaders Circle, organizing major programs, and overseeing their internship program. I know we have a lot of interns here today. She's a Connecticut native, but she's lived in New York City for over 25 years since moving there to study photography and graphic design at the School of Visual Arts with a focus on political art. She graduated from New York University with a BA in politics, and she lives in Brooklyn with her husband and daughter, but she's going to move soon, move up a little, to up north. 
Now, since I am one of the only people in this room old enough to have known William F. Buckley Jr. in the 1960s and 1970s, I hope you'll allow me to make a few personal comments about this extraordinary man. In addition to founding National Review in 1955, in 1960, Bill Buckley was a founder of Young Americans for Freedom. I was in high school and college in the 1960s, and Bill Buckley's influence and YAF is how I and many other older conservatives became conservative activists. The founding YAF statement was called the Sharon Statement, not after a young woman named Sharon, but because it was written at the Buckley home in Sharon, Connecticut. There were only three national organizations for young people on our side in the 1960s, Young Americans for Freedom, ISI, and Young Republicans. And in New York, where I grew up, Young Republic was very liberal, run by Rockefeller Republicans, what we would now call rhinos. So Young Americans for Freedom is now merged into Young America's Foundation, which has its headquarters here in D.C. and has its West Coast office at Ronald Reagan's beloved uh, Santa Barbara Ranch, which Yaf purchased and saved for all of us. In the 1960s, and really until the day he died, Bill Buckley was willing to help Yaf, speaking at almost every major conference we ever had. My first five years after college, I was on the national staff of Young Americans for Freedom. And I loved how Bill appreciated the importance of training up the next generation of conservative leaders, something Lindsay carries on now. Remember back then, what I call the olden days, we had no internet, we had no Fox, we had no cable. We had a couple of good conservative national talk radio programs, if you could tune them in. And there were only two conservative national publications, Buckley's National Review and Human Events Newspaper. There was one conservative program on television. Could you imagine that? All my growing up years, and it was William F. Buckley's Firing Line TV program, and my whole family would gather every week around the little television to watch it together. And I have to say that Bill was close to and very fond of Claire Booth Luth, after whom we named the Center for Conservative Women. Um, they have some great Firing Line uh, discussions that you can uh, find on long, uh, online if you'd like. And I want to tell you, he wrote so many books. When I read his nonfiction books, I would have a yellow pad with me and end up with pages and pages of words he used whose meaning I didn't know. Big, good words. I mean, a vocabulary lesson like nothing you ever get in school. And my husband used to give me one of Buckley's fiction books every year at Christmas. They were quick reading, little entertaining books about Blackford Oaks. He was a CIA agent. He was a spy, and he was the lead character in these neat little fun fiction books. I had lunch with Bill Buckley after I'd served eight years with President Reagan, and I had wanted to write a book about those years, and I thought, well, he's written so many books, so I asked him for his advice about writing. Um, his books were so wonderful. And he looked me in the eye and said, Michelle? You sit down and start writing. What a great man. What a great American. He was right. Just start. What a huge influence William F. Buckley Jr. was in my life and that of so many conservatives of the time, and even today. And Lindsey Craig does more to keep this important legacy alive than any other person. Please join me now in welcoming from the National Review Institute, Lindsey Craig. Thank you. That was very nice.
very incredibly generous. And I would say that uh, the two of you, these wonderful women here, uh, probably do more uh, to carry on the, the legacy and, and support the conservative movement, right? <laughs> anyway, thank you all for um, having me. Thank you so much, Michelle. I really um, am so excited. Obviously, our organizations and, um, and YAF have had such a close relationship over the years that um, it's really fun. You, you come to our events, and now I get to come to your event, so that's good. Um, so I wanted to start off by asking all of you, we've got some microphones here, because um, we're not going to just talk at you. We want to make this a little bit conversational. So who here knows who Bill Buckley is? Don't worry, we won't immediately call on you, but okay. So there's some people here who don't know who he is, yes? Okay. Now, for maybe just a couple of you can tell us um, when you first encountered Bill Buckley. We have a microphone here. And maybe like two or three things that you would say are items or attributes that, that you associate with Bill Buckley. Don't be shy. Some of you. Oh, there we go. I see your hands. <laughs> I also came across uh, Bill Buckley for the first time with my Young Americans for Freedom chapter. Uh, I mean, similarly, I would say he's really insightful and really inspiring and just to his dedication to uh, the conservative movement. What would be a few issues that you would associate with him? Things that you thought he championed? If you don't know, it's okay. That's I, I part mean, of what I'm gonna... he championed a lot, but I, I, I would say I mean, major one, just like overcoming leftism and that as a movement in general. Good. Okay, good. Somebody else? Raise your hand over here, I think. Right here? Yeah. Thank you. I also was very actively involved in Young America's Foundation uh, all throughout high school and a little bit into college. Um, and I would say just his dedication to smart, transcendent principles of conservatism is what I often think of him. Um, and I also always remember his book, uh, God, Man, and Yale, and his story of conversion. Great. Anyone over here? Want to give like a couple issues that you associate with Bill Buckley? No? Okay. So I think it's super interesting. Um, it has been for me in, in taking this job. Um, uh, so I was born in 1972, and I definitely was a Reagan kid. Right, so Reagan became president when I was in second grade, and that sort of informs your whole life, right? And so for us at the time, Reagan had such a big influence on what you, the way you talked about um, about politics, um, that for a young child, you really saw that it was it was everywhere. But actually, what was everywhere before that, and the reason why we could have Reagan is because of Bill Buckley. And I only learned that that later. So one of the things that I wanted to sort of go back to the beginning and, and, and go over, and then we can have more of a conversation, I don't want to talk at you for too long, is what are the things about Bill Buckley, who was this really huge historical figure who had so much influence over, um, uh, over political writing, over political philosophy, about the way that we message things, over the actual politicians, whether it be Barry Goldwater or Ronald Reagan and others, um, on uh, his faith um, in writing novels, um, in being a sailor. <laughs> he was quite a polymath. So there's lots of different ways of looking at him. 
Um, but I think that to me, there's sort of three, for us, three main areas or, or legacy issues that I think that we can kind of hold on to and see how um, they might influence your life, your professional life, and your personal life going forward. They have for me. So the first one for me is bringing people together. Um, this is a uh, sort of like a lost art. <laughs> um, I think the Heritage Foundation does a great job of this, and thank God they're a beacon uh, for this. The other is uh, civil debate, the idea of actually debating and then being able to be friends afterwards. We might have lost a little bit of this right now, but we can get it back, so that's another one. And also the importance of culture. Right, um, we're all working in a political field right now, but culture was very important to Bill Buckley, and um, I'll explain a little bit about what he did. So, going back to the bringing people together part, so I brought here and I brought some replica copies for everybody. This is the premier issue of National Review, and uh, as some of you know, uh, Jack Fowler, uh, this is the kind of thing that he does. Very important, make some replicas so that people can see everything that was in the original issue of National Review that came out in November 19th, 1955. So I'm going to name off some names here. Hopefully some of them ring a bell. But after Bill wrote God and Man at Yale, and it made such a big stir, um, he kind of rose to real prominence. And there was maybe three factions at the time in the 50s. Now remember, this is a post-World War II era, okay? So the context is different than today. But the three were really on the right, uh, the anti-communists, which were strong and had a lot of strange bedfellows who weren't really friends necessarily before that. Uh, the libertarians um, and sort of the strong uh, sort of social conservatives. And so when Bill started National Review, he wanted to pull them all together. So here we have people on that appeared in this premier issue that had to be convinced by Bill because they did not talk to each other. Frank Meyer... Does this name Maria Bell? Great libertarian, strong libertarian. Uh, James Burnham, more of a sort of cultural traditional conservative, like Russell Kirk, who also appears in here. John Chamberlain, Wilmer Kendall, Freda Utley, who is a strong anti-communist because she had lived in the Soviet Union <laughs> and decided that that system didn't really work. Um, and so what's interesting to me is that here it is in the premier issue and that still continues today um, in the pages of National Review and now online. This was not such an easy task, as I understand it. Um, and I think that some great explanation of this is in Lee Edwards' book. I've got lots of props for you all today. Um, you all should get this book and read it. I don't know if you give it out to your uh, uh, people. But uh, Lee Edwards, who's here at the Heritage Foundation, who is a scholar of conservative thought, this book is a fantastic read. As you can see, it's not like a huge tome. You can definitely get through it. But it explains how Bill sort of shuttled between Frank Meyer and James Burnham in particular to get them to appreciate that other people were appreciating and respecting their, their work. They did not talk to each other, but Bill would write them little notes to James Burnham saying, Frank thought you wrote this fabulous piece in the last issue. And he would do the same to Frank. And then they continued to appear on the pages together. Um, and Russell Kirk, who also thought that there was no reason to really appear in such a publication, decided after much convincing, um, and this was after he had written The Conservative Mind, that it would be uh, OK if he could write a, a regular column in National Review. So 
this kind of bringing people together um, was an important aspect of Bill Buckley's personality, but also his goal in creating in the conservative movement uh, disparate voices, but that really actually were all on the same page. That they might have some things that were different, that they didn't have to agree 100% with the other person, but they agreed enough that they felt like they were on the same side. And when you have the um, sort of like a, a big looming uh, threat like communism, that was advantageous for Bill to be able to get everybody on the same page. We do live in a different context today. Um, and I think that it's important to understand that one of the ways that he was very successful in getting everybody to work together was using this communist threat as a, as a, um, as a uniter. But we can find other ways, I think, to do that today. Uh, you might have heard the word fusionism before. Um, Bill was very, uh, very well known for wanting to particularly bring together the traditionalists and the libertarians. And also, I wanted to just read, um, I have to put on my glasses, because like I said, I was born in 72. Um, okay, so in the, in the premier issue here, they have the, um, the two, the, the tenants, sorry, of the, um, of the publication and what they're, uh, will you do me a favor, Alex, will you find that? Um, I have it, I had the post-it on it and it came off, so I'm sorry. Um, the, so he wanted to found the magazine that had both looking at the traditional conservative position and the libertarian limited government position. Before he started National Review, he called himself an individualist, um, and then he called himself a libertarian. Um, he was very influenced by um, Albert J. Nock, who was a good friend of his father's, um, who I don't think they were uh, exactly ideologically aligned always, but uh, um, Albert Nock came to their house quite a bit, and they had family dinners, which I think his father did rather regularly, um, being in such a prominent family. They were able to kind of bring... Um, uh, you know, prominent public intellectual thinkers um, to their family, which had 10 kids. So it must have been quite a fabulous uh, dining room table. So the other is um, rising to the challenge of um, uh, debating people on the other side in a civil way um, and sort of being able to hold your ground, but being able to understand who the best opponent is on the other side. Um, as Michelle mentioned, he um, started a show called Firing Line um, in 1966. It ran all the way until 1999. Thank you. And, um, and there was like 1,500 episodes almost. And on the TV show, which I really recommend that you all watch, and actually we find a lot of young people probably do. How many people have watched uh, Firing Line online? Yeah, a few. Okay. So the rest of you, that can be part of your homework after you read Lee Edwards' book. Um, and uh, on Firing Line, the point there was to bring on people and have an actual civil discussion where you engaged in real issues for an hour. Um, now, this was something that, you know, with only three TV channels basically at the time, maybe four with PBS, you had the opportunity to do. Um, it was a weekend program, 
Um, and so there wasn't a lot of, you know, like TV shows or breaking news. And so they were able to um, provide an opportunity for, for this TV show. And Bill got all the funding for it. Um, and so obviously then the shows are kind of uh, ready-made for, uh, for TV. So Bill brought on people who um, were like Hugh Hefner, um, one of my favorite sort of clips from that is um, Hugh Hefner is going off about how monogamy is not really human nature and that we don't really, it's like a, an odd social construct and he's going on and on saying all these negative things and you can just see Bill Buckley getting a little like super agitated and then he finally says, he says, excuse me, but how the hell would you know? <laughs> and you're like, okay. But then they continued and had a very good conversation. Um, and I think the important point of that is that you can bring on somebody who is really the best representative of this other point of view and engage and be able to kind of noodle out what the discussion is, right? But he would also have on people who he mostly agreed with. So it was like Claire Booth, Luz, and as Michelle was saying, they did have a little bit of a disagreement um, on there. Um, Bill had said some things about women that Claire, I think, did not like, um, which is also great. Um, he had Margaret Thatcher on several times, and they had a an excellent conversation about the role of government and how how much the government should be involved, particularly in economic policy. Um, and it's a very interesting conversation, so I, I encourage you um, to, to look at that one. But a lot of different people on the left wanted to then come on the show because I think that they felt as though Bill respected him, them, right? And I think that this is a really important legacy issue that we can take on today. Um, I think when the other side doesn't feel like you res they res that you respect them, they're not really going to respect you, right? And if we want people to respect our ideas, to listen to them, that we think that we're good advocates for our position, then we should respect their perspective. We don't agree with it. We're not going to advocate for it. But we want them to be heard just like we want to be heard. And I think that in this age, unfortunately, of sort of rapid reaction, of Twitter, of wanting to denounce people before maybe you've even heard the whole argument, or reacting to something before you've read the whole article, like maybe the context of it. Um, I think it really hurts our side in um, us being able to make our strongest arguments and defend our issues. Um, so I think that that's sort of a very important legacy that Bill had that I think we can still um, work on today. And then lastly the, is culture. Bill Buckley um, founded a magazine of politics and culture. Um, and if you look in here, which I want you all to do, there's a section called Books, Arts, and Manners. So it comes like this in the premier issue. And today we have the same thing, Books, Arts, and Manners. And on the online, we have a much larger section, um, which now includes film and TV reviews, um, art reviews regularly, um, and this section is sponsored by National Review Institute now. And it's interesting because I think that when Bill founded the magazine, he was encouraged in the political space to put out a publication that would um, have political philosophy in it and discuss policy issues of the day. But he felt that it was also very important 
for there to be a mix of culture because we're not just political beings, right? Um, the context that we exist in is our culture. And so if we want to engage in a discussion about music or literature um, or art, um, there's a political aspect to that. And as Michelle mentioned, I studied a lot of political art. Actually, all art is political if you look at it in a certain way. Um, but you're trying to communicate something through visual art, and you're trying to communicate something through music. And so Bill felt that this was an important equalizer, right? This is another way that you can bring people together, which is the first point that I talked about, right? We can all talk about Bach, and we can all feel what it feels like to listen to the Brandenburg Concerto. And that has nothing to do with whether we think that Social Security <laughs> should um, be distributed in a certain way or not, or whether we should build a wall. And so this is actually a fabulous um, mechanism that Bill used to bring in the other side. He would regularly have concerts at his home where he would have lots of people that he didn't agree with. Um, his best friend was somebody that he didn't agree with on, on political issues but they could sail together, and they could ski together, and they could listen to music together. And that is super important, and I think doesn't happen enough today. Um, one of us actually having friends on the other side, which I think is something that we all really need to work on, um, because sometimes it's very hard. But the other is to be really involved in the arts. And Bill and his wife, Pat, were very, very involved in the arts. Um, because they think that culture matters. And this building that we had the, uh, the prize dinner in, where we honored Ed Fulner, um, is actually a great example of public art, essentially. This was a public library when it was first built, um, so that for the benefit of all the people, right? And so, again, this is a, a way that we feel that like our culture represents who we are um, and um, can highlight and put a priority on the things that we think are important. So I would just encourage you all to, um, to think about your, the cultural issues and to think about um, ways that you can use non-political um, uh, issues to be able to engage and bring people together. So I want to open it up for questions, and I can talk uh, about um, a lot of different aspects of the Buckley legacy, but I think if we kind of try to keep it to these three issues, um, I would love to know how you all think about um, any of these three issues. Um, what do you think about civil debate? Do you think that there's enough of it? What do you think about Twitter? How do you think that, <laughs> how do, or Facebook conversations? Um, uh, and what do you think about culture? Are, are any of you involved um, in, in, uh, in groups that might be more sort of cultural or art oriented um, where you're able to engage with people not about politics but about the other things that we think are important. So with that I want to open it up um, for some some commentary from all of you. Um, yes, right here. Hi, thank you so much for speaking. That was Oh, my name is Ellie Hicks. I'm a fellow with Claire Booth Luce. Great. Um, and it's really great. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say that I think it's really important to be involved in the arts. I did theater for so many years growing up. I still, you know, enjoy singing and I still enjoy going to shows. Um, 
And through theater, I gained a lot of friends who I disagreed with a lot. My best friend um, is kind of socialist, kind of freaks me out, but I also love her so much. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to say that if you're interested in any kind of art, like everybody here, just do it because it really is, I, I have some of the best friends ever that I completely disagree with. Um, I think it's such a good point because you um, you have an opportunity to share something that you um, share something in common um, with a group of people that whatever your politics are are irrelevant when you walk into the door there. It is still who you are. And so it's not about not making it who you are. It's just about understanding where you have common ground with other people because then, like your friend, you guys will engage over time, over dinner, whatever. You'll talk about various things. Obviously, you know what her views are if you think that she's a socialist. <laughs> um, and then maybe over time, you can have a conversation. She can see your point of view, and, and that's a good thing. Others? Hi, so I was wondering, how did William F. Buckley jump into art and culture without falling to the lowest common denominator of sports, movies, and music while still engaging the public's attention? So um, Rich Lowry likes to say that, uh, so Rich Lowry, who's the, the current editor-in-chief of National Review, is a big Yankee fan. Um, he, uh, I mean, likes sports statistics and history and everything. He, he knows it all. And he always says that somebody asked Bill one time if he wanted to go to a Yankee game, and he said, no, I've been to one. <laughs> and so he just wasn't a sports fan. Um, he sailed, um, but he just wasn't. But he did play the harpsichord. So he was, um, he was very, uh, music was very much a part of his household when he was growing up. And he played an instrument. I think his siblings played um, instruments. Um, and uh, so I think that from his perspective, it was more probably the high arts um, than, than um, sports and such. But I, I do also want to mention, though, because you, you mentioned this, um, uh, you saw recently, I think, that ESPN decided that they're not going to do anything you know, political, right? And um, I know that... Uh, some of the folks on the editorial staff at National Review right now um, are really interested in sports. Um, David French talks a lot about basketball, and I don't know what else he follows. And um, so they were thinking of, of having a sports section on National Review. So it would be like a place where, again, it could be a wonderful convener opportunity where you would have people who might come for the sports coverage, uh, whether they're conservatives or not, and maybe they'll read some of the other pieces. Um, but it's also a great way uh, for for some of the National Review writers who don't agree, um, which has, again, always been part of the magazine, that you don't have people who are 100% agreeing on everything, um, to be able to talk about something else. They can argue about the whatever their home state baseball team is. <laughs> um, anyone else? What do, what do you guys think? Go ahead. Um. I am one of our interns here, and I'm working partially with outreach, and yeah. so I agree with Bill, and I actually think that um, we should take the culture, that kind of that seam, and rip it open, and especially when you're reaching out to youth, a 15-year-old kid isn't really interested in tax policy, um, but they are interested in culture, and so I think that is actually how you 
message to them. And then in that, you can kind of, on the caboose, bring in uh, education, morally, politically, that's conservative. But I think you meet them with culture because that's what their eyes go to. You know what I mean? So it's really cool that he did that. But I think, and I think you could do both. I think you could do sports, media, and fine arts. Why not all, right? Why limit it? So you'll get more people that way. So it's a cool thing. I think there's a lot of desire there right now. And you're seeing like National Review wants to get into it. Turning Point's trying to address it. Heritage even has a desire. So it'll be cool to see like that need, that need met um, in the next 10 years or so. Yeah, you mentioned about culture. And you can, um, you were going to, Get the microphone away from your friend there. I saw that you were. But you know, we were actually uh, just having some some meetings about um, uh, sort of the social media space and the issue of free speech. And this is in a way, I think, of also being able to um, speak to people, probably young people. Um, more so than than older people like I'm not even actually on Facebook uh, <laughs> so if, if you talk to them about an issue that they see as like a cultural issue or one that is interested they're interesting to them because it affects so much of their life but you can be able to interject issues of free speech and freedom of expression um, after uh, having the initial conversation excuse me about um, about what's on, on Facebook and should it be um, regulated or whatever. Um, I just had a quick question um, along the same lines of culture. I don't know much about Bill, um, like at all, but I wondered if he had any... Um... You can read this book. <laughs> I plan on it. It looks good. Um, did he say anything specifically about the tie between culture and morality? as opposed to culture and politics, because what, what I see is sort of the issue with, with culture nowadays, and just as a religious person, it seems inextricably tied to immorality. And I don't know, like, how... Um, you talk about, like, the fine arts, and he played the harpsichord and things, and when I think of culture nowadays, it's just so far removed from things like that. Um, not that those things are inherently moral, but so much of our culture, as kids would think of it today, has to do with just terrible music and like awful themes and the terrible language. And, um, and so I wondered if he had anything to say about that, the denigration of culture as it, as it pertains to morality and maybe what we can do culturally about that. Um, so he was very much a man of faith. Um, and I, he, um, was not, uh, I want to say he's, he was not shy about it. Um, in other words, like it permeated all of his writing. He was not an evangelist, um, but he definitely uh, wove it into his writings. And he had a lot of cultural critique as well. Um, I'm not sure, though, that he would use the word immoral, except for in um, very specific situations. Um, remember, he did appear in the pages of Playboy, which some people would consider, you know, sort of, like accepted pornography, right? Um, which would then mean some people would think it's immoral. Um, and that's a judgment call. Um, but I mean, he sort of jokes about it, uh, because he says like, this is how he was able to reach his son, Christopher. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I published a national, I mean, in Playboy so that I could reach my son, Christopher. Um, 
which is is probably um, I mean there's sort of probably some like sort of half truth to that that's sort of funny um, but I think that his his main point there was like you go to where the people are reading right and he didn't have a problem with that he thought it was important that you you reach people um, in all the ways that you can. So he spent a tremendous amount of time to speaking on college campuses. Obviously, he published National Review. He had a tremendous number of books, more than like normal people could ever produce, um, that both were novels that had um, uh, specific themes to them, um, as well as, obviously, his, his policy books. Um, uh, uh, like I said, firing line. He did a lot of debates, a lot of speaking, a lot of engagement with, with people um, in different ways so that he could reach the maximum audience. Um, and I think that in his cultural critique, um, uh, I think that the way that he wanted to put that forward, and I don't want to speak for him, and I'm not a Buckley scholar. Again, you should visit Lee Edwards upstairs. Um, uh, but... Um, the, what's, what's fascinating to me about the pages of National Review um, historically, but then also today, is that um, uh, people's faith is, um, is referenced um, and mentioned as how they got to their perspective on things. Um, and it's very common um, in almost, I would say, probably half of the articles that appear in National Review right now will have some reference at some point um, to either the broader culture and faith or the writer's um, perspective on that. And I think that that's the way you can kind of weave it in without being um, uh, an evangel even evangelizing about it um, or being judgmental about it. So so other people I wanted to ask about, um, about civil debate. There's a lot of debate right now, right? Uh, what do you all think about that? Hi. So uh, I write for the Christian Post and CBN News, and um, doing social media production for them, I see a lot of someone will have a position and they'll, they'll deliver it civilly. It'll certainly be a disagreement with, with the uh, main, main narrative, um, but dissent has been equated or associated with hate. How do you navigate that conversation? It's like I, I being whoever it is online saying, I am disagreeing, but I don't hate you. I don't think ill of you. I don't wish harm on you, but yada, yada. And then they'll say, oh, you're still hateful because, you know, fill in the ridiculous straw man variable. So what do we do? What do we do in that situation? So I would like to know if somebody here has an answer to that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Hi, my name is Catherine Woodhouse. So having graduated from Hillary Clinton's alma mater and sitting here today, I know a little bit about that. Um, going to Wellesley College was a, a wonderful experience for me um, in the uh, kind of political climate that I was able to be there with, especially as someone who um, is uh, politically not um, the, uh, let's just say the ideals that, that Wellesley necessarily espouses or some of the students within Wellesley espouses. Um, I would say uh, for uh, lots of institutions, um, like uh, especially collegiate institutions, they go even a step further um, than just saying, oh, you're hateful. Um, they actually create uh, an environment where um, if you disagree with them, you are a racist, you are homophobic, you are a bigot because you stand against um, their marginalized label, their whatever they create. And so it's, and it's uh, a new kind of argument and it's a new kind of rhetoric these days where instead of attacking the opinion, or not even attacking, instead of discussing an opinion, it's, it's seen as attacking the person themselves. 
So it completely delegitimizes um, the other person's argument. So um, at Wellesley, I was a part of uh, an organization called the Freedom Project, which uh, tried to bring in speakers um, of different political beliefs um, to have different discussions. Um, it was interesting, needless to say. Uh, we had lots of protests. Um, we had, uh, you know, and it was met with mixed reviews. Now we have um, a task force of free speech, which I think is kind of ironic. Um, but that was put forth by administration as a response to the Freedom Project. So um, I say that to give a lot of context to this answer, which is um, people need to put their labels aside and discuss the topic. And so when it comes to actually being able to sit down and have a discussion, um, I think everything else should go by the wayside, all the context, all the hypotheticals, and it should be the, the debate and the discussion itself. And I think to set up a forum where that is encouraged um, is definitely the first step. Yeah, that's that's a great project that you were involved in, and I, I think that um, what I had mentioned earlier um, about one of the the second thing that I mentioned in terms of being, I think one of the great takeaways that we can have that we can learn from Bill Buckley and his style um, is that he uh, he was not he did not respond to directly to the negative with another negative um, and trying to find representatives of the other side who are the best um, at uh, arguing their side. Um, rising to that challenge is how we can make our best arguments, right? And so um, finding the best people who represent the other side is sometimes a little bit challenging in and of itself. Um, but one of the things that we found is that if you're inviting people, again, with respect, um, as Bill Buckley did, or when he would invite people um, who disagree to be appear in the pages of, of National Review, um, that you start out with this uh, with, with respect and try to uh, elicit as much of it back as, as possible. Um, it's not going to always work. And I think that the context that we're working in right now is that people, um, particularly on the other side, um, immediately devolve to these labels, which are like throwing gasoline on a fire. Because as soon as you use those labels, it ends all of the discussion. And I think we can't let them do that. I think that we can say, okay, we put that to the side, and now let's talk about the issue. It's what Bill did. And um, I think that that's one of the things that I would ar argue that um, or advocate for all of you uh, to to take with you. And by the way, I'd also say that um, in response to what you were saying is, um, so there was like tremendous amount of mail that came into National Review um, over the years and obviously still does. And some of it is um, really fabulous and like super supportive of, of various things. And then there's sort of a cohort in the middle that people just want you to like argue about something and you sort of forgot this nuanced thing or whatever. And then there's like a whole category of stuff that's, you know, especially stuff that comes in now that's like really like, wow, maybe we should hand this over to the police. Um, but, uh, you know, just like the language that people use is, is pretty overblown. But um, I think that Bill was also well known for responding to readers. Um, all of them, you might get like a one uh, line uh, letter back. 
um, but um, National Review uh, published a letter section where they would have responses. But also Bill Buckley, you can look in the pages, um, Bill and, and other, other writers would write responses. So sometimes, particularly this is like in an era where, you know, National Review, Review would come out and it would be mailed to people's homes and then somebody would write a response and it would appear in like the New Republic and then you would respond and they would be, I mean, this would go on for, for months. Um, but I also think that that allowed for a little bit of a settling down and it wasn't like quite as emotional as things get right now. Um, and since Bill Buckley was such a level-headed person. I think that this worked to his advantage um, in being able to to respond to uh, important critiques. Um, we have a whole um, in, in our office now. We have a new sort of museum-ish kind of thing. We have some display cases of Buckley memorabilia, and we have one whole case on his faith. Um, but there was a lot of conversation um, and criticism of his faith. Um, at a certain time in the 70s. And he, I think, reacted and then had to react again in writing in a more level-headed way. Um, and uh, it was very important to him that he that he got his actual message out on this. Um, and I think I just, I mentioned that because I think that um, we're also all human, right? And um, I think that that's a, a really important um, backdrop uh, context. Uh, so you're going to have emotions and when people call you names, um, but uh, we can rise above it. And I think that that's like the best thing that we can do um, as conservatives. We can be confident that you have a network of people here who have your back. And um, it's not about always being like first in your response, but being right and respectful. And I think that that's a, a good legacy from, from Bill. Um, are there any others? I know we're running on time. Are we? One hand in the back. Oh, Did you have anything? No? I've got a question. If you can share with everyone, some are still on campus. Some yeah. are um, have already graduated and they're in their first job. So how would a student get a National Review speaker on yeah. campus? And then what are the fellowship programs National Review might have or what relationships do you have with some programs that are on campus. Yeah, well, um, Alex got a shout out earlier, so now Claire can get one. Uh, this is Claire Ath, um, who uh, works for National Review Institute here in DC. She runs uh, NRI on campus. Uh, she oversees our intern program and also our fellowship program. So um, I'll just briefly overview. What we try to do, again, sort of in the Buckley legacy, since he spent so much time on college campuses, is bring National Review writers to college campuses. Um, and one of the main ways that we like to do that, though, is to partner with groups who are established um, on campuses already. So we're not just going to, like, arrive at, like, the University of Wisconsin um, and hope that people show up. Uh, we think that there are fabulous networks. We work with ISI, and we work with YAF, and we work with the AEI program, and and um, some others. So if you are um, on campus and you're involved in a group, that uh, regularly hosts um, speakers, um, you know, you can get an audience, you should write to Claire. And Claire will start a conversation with you and find out a little bit more about how we can make that work. Uh, one of the things that we do with our program, which I think is important, is, um, and we do this with our partnership programs also, is we pay for the travel for the speaker. 
um, and somebody like Claire or another member of our team to to go and to help on on the ground when we arrive. But it's up to the host group to kind of fill the room and and make sure the logistics um, are are you know sort of all operational for for the speaker. And we want to make it as efficient as possible for our writers to arrive on campus and to spend time with the students. Um, if there's a student newspaper that they can talk to, we're really interested in that because we think that that helps to sort of again broaden the audience of people who might. Um, hear the ideas that they have um, and then if there's any other kinds of groups that uh, or like maybe sometimes there's a small group that, of people who are really interested in journalism so sometimes what we've been doing is having like a larger forum and then afterwards we have you know pizza with like you know eight students who are actually really interested in learning about journalism and sort of more of a one-on-one -on -one type uh, type thing but definitely get in touch with Claire about that um, and the fellowships so National Review Institute sponsors three fellowships right now. Uh, two are Buckley Journalism Fellows, which are students who have just graduated from college. It's a one-year um, grant to work for National Review. Um, and the it can be in kind of any area. It, the National Review editors choose the, the candidate. Um, and it's based on who they kind of need in the portfolio of writers that they have um, at that given time. So if they have a lot of reporters and they need sort of more editorial writers, then they'll pick somebody who is stronger in that area. So there's no sort of like one thing. Um, so there's two, and that's renewable to another year. So sometimes they're there for two years. Um, and then we sponsor um, a Rhodes Fellow. And this is named after uh, Dusty Rhodes, who is a um, former president of National Review. Inc., um, who had been a longtime sort of philanthropist and involved with, with conservative groups for a long time. He was a fabulous person, well-known throughout the movement um, as just a, a delight. Um, and he passed away about a year ago. Um, and we, um, with his wife and at the support of the Bradley Foundation, um, have a, a fellowship, which is actually different in its structure. It's a somebody who's maybe three years, three, five years out of school, has some work experience, um, is established themselves as a journalist, um, uh, and uh, would like to spend probably two to three years then at National Review. Um, this would be a little bit like more like second job kind of, kind of thing. So, and right now we have um, one of our journalism fellows graduated to be the Rhodes Fellow. <laughs> so we're really excited about that, yeah. Good. Okay. Thank you all. What a wonderful talk. <laughs> Thank you. A great talk about an extraordinary man. Thank you so much You're for welcome. coming and sharing. We have a couple of gifts here for you. Um, you know, Mrs. Lewis's favorite flower was a red rose, and she used Aww. to wear it in a little vase on her uh, lapel, but those are hard to find. So yeah. there you go. Thank you so much. You're so, so sweet. So clear with those flowers. That's very sweet. That's sweet. We have a, a gift here from the Heritage Foundation also, oh one gosh. of our kind of monogram signature um, items to share with you oh, to take you. back to New York. We want to thank you all for joining us and thank those um, who are going to be watching online.